I want to start this morning's lesson by going back to the passage that Landon read and just noticing the two questions that Jesus asks and the two answers that are given. It says in Mark 8, verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, question one, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. John the Baptist was a prophet. Elijah was one of the prophets. Other people are just saying he's, he's one of all of the, the prophets that we have. He's, he's, another, he's one of the prophets. Question number two. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, answer number two, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. In Matthew's account of this, in Matthew 16, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, on this rock, the rock of this confession that you've made, I'm going to build my church. That's how important, how basic, how fundamental this confession is. This is the essence we have to get about who Jesus is right at the start. People sure like to talk about who Jesus is. People have all kinds of ideas about who Jesus is. Christianity is the world's largest religion. Jesus is at the center of it. Our, our, the whole global calendar is built around the time that Jesus was born. The we have today off. We have Sundays off all, all over the world because this is the day Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is, is important. If you Google it, this is what you do when you want to find something, right? You go to the internet, find information, and if you type in, who is Jesus? Andrew? <laughs> Look at this. Over 2 billion Answers, responses come up. I mean, people have so many different views. So everybody is talking about who Jesus is. I noticed, though, at the top of this, I loved this question. Who is Jesus according to the Bible? We're going to get to that answer. And that's really our focus to this, here this morning. But Jesus, it, it's funny. People seem to treat him like an idea. Like this abstract concept, an abstract shape for them to project whatever they want on him. Like, you know, those Rorschach ink blots where people look at them and, and psychotherapists will, look, will take your answer. And if you say that the, the ink blot looks like a snake, then it means one thing. And if you say it looks like a butterfly, it means something else. And I don't know how much there is to that, but it's interesting how you can take what you are and how you look at the world and project it onto Jesus. And so there's so many different versions of who Jesus is that people have in their minds. There's, you can look and, you know, what are all the paintings? There's the blonde Jesus with blue eyes and, and there's the black Jesus and there's, there's this little figure you can buy they call Buddy Jesus and Jesus giving a thumbs up. There's 
you know, there's what Muslims say about Jesus. And you can buy New Age books about who Jesus is and their version of it. There's, there's people who just like to focus on the, the cuddly picture of baby Jesus. And there's, there's other people who like the picture of that avenging, conquering, angry Jesus. And there's people who love to paint pictures of laughing Jesus. And people who love to paint pictures of Jesus hugging people. People they love, maybe. There's, there's all of these different views of Jesus And if Jesus is just an abstract idea, then you can co-opt him and make him into whatever you want him to be. But wait, Jesus isn't an idea. Jesus is a person. Jesus is a person. Jesus is a human person. According to the Bible, according to his church, as we declare it and confess it, Jesus is a divine person. There's another reason that Jesus is so full, so talked about, and, and so full of so many different pictures. And that is that Jesus is such a complete and perfect human that there's all of these different vignettes of him and it almost starts to feel like a walking contradiction like okay which one is he is he the the guy that has little kids sit on his lap or is he the guy that chases people out of the temple and carries that authority with him here he is carrying with him this authority in his teaching that just completely forces you to rethink everything you thought you knew. They're fresh ideas and insights. And yet he says over and over again, the basis of everything I'm saying, it's all revealed in this ancient Old Testament book. And I'm building on these biblical texts and explaining it to you as it should have been built, explained from the beginning. As he's challenging these Jewish leaders, he's taking the very text that they're teaching and saying, no, you just had it wrong. Here he is carrying this regal dignity, this immense power to walk on water and to calm storms and to raise the dead. And yet we find him without resistance, accepting humiliation, shame, Suffering, death, and saying that, no, this is what I do myself for you. In fact, for all of those who are doing these things to me, this varied picture is at the, at the heart of why we just take everything he says and just want to sit under a tree and contemplate it. And more than anything, why we want to follow him. Why we, I'll say it, fall in love with this man. Why we admire and, and desire to please him and to be with him. And so we can only do so much in one lesson. And this... The Bible is full of these pictures. It's like a photo album with all of these different pictures of Jesus doing all these different things. 
And people sometimes want to just grab onto one of those pictures. But I want to encourage you, read the Gospels. Read these first four books of the New Testament, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, as our reading plan this year is going through the Gospels four times. And as you read them, watch. You know, there's, there's like a meme on the internet about someone just saying, watch this. Just sit back. Watch what Jesus does. And if you're not blown away, if you're not... Um, if you're not fascinated and drawn to this figure, then read it again because I think you missed something. Jesus is so wonderful and so powerful, but at the heart of all of these things that we see about Jesus, there is this focus on this passage. In fact, this passage, Mark 8, where Jesus asked this first question, who do people say that I am? And the second question, who do you say that I am? Is in three of those gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we'll talk about two other confessions that function this way in John, one from Peter and one from Martha. This confession is central to who we are to understand about Jesus is. This is his identity at the core. Who do they say I am? What a swirl of ideas and conversation there is about who Jesus is. And so from this, we get our first option. Answer number one, Jesus is one of right? John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, one of the prophets, Peter says, or the, the disciples say, one of the prophets. And that's kind of what people say today, right? Isn't that basically what a lot of people say? He's one of, one of the prophets. He's one of the great teachers. He's one of the good guys. Muslims say he's a really important prophet. You know, people, humanists say we should listen to his teaching about loving other people, that's really good. But if he's one of, then we can just listen to some of what he has to say, right? It's like the buffet line. And that's what people do. They say, okay, I like this little bit from Buddha. I like this bit from Jesus. I like this part over here from Confucius or from whoever, you know? Because... He's just one of. He's just a good guy. He's maybe one of the luminaries, one of the truly good people who's ever been. And it's so awful what happened to him. But that's all. That's all. That is an answer. Maybe it's an answer that some of you have given at times. But option two that Peter sets out is that Jesus is the Christ. I think people sometimes miss what this means. And if you miss what this means, you're missing a pretty critical part. It's interesting. We call ourselves Christians. This religion, Christianity. 
But do you know what, or Christians, right? Christianity. Do you know what Christ is? It's, it's not part of Jesus' name. It is a title, a role that explains how he fits into the story of the Bible, into the story of everything. What is the Christ? What does that even mean? Well, it is a translation, a Greek translation, Christos, of the Hebrew word Messiah or Mashiach, Messiah. And both of those just mean the anointed one. The anointed one. The Messiah. But what is that about? Well, in Israel, whenever they wanted to appoint someone, they would anoint them. To anoint someone is to appoint that someone to a special office. And there were really three different offices that we see them appointed to and anointed by oil being poured on their head, sacred oil being poured on their head to say, this person now has a special office. The first ones that we find anointed for this, this special role before God is priests. And we find this many different times in Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy. Exodus chapter 40 talks about this. And so a priest and a high priest would need to be anointed with oil, and that would be part of them becoming this person who would be the representative of the people before God, bringing sacrifices to the Lord. And he, they would then become also the representative of God to the people. They were, were to teach the people and they were to lead the people. And so there were this go-between. And Jesus will take on this role in a way no one has ever taken it on before. That's the first office that's anointed. Maybe most famously is the king. The king of Israel was anointed. In fact, throughout the scriptures, the king of Israel is called the Lord's anointed. David refused to put a hand on Saul, even though Saul was chasing him down and trying to kill him because he said, I won't do that. That would be attack, an attack essentially against the Lord because you are the Lord's anointed. You're the king that God has appointed with divine authority to rule over his people. David himself received this anointing. In 1 Samuel 16, whenever Samuel anointed him, while, while Saul was still reigning as king, he became the Lord's true anointed. And then it says, after he poured the oil on him, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And the coming of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, upon the Lord's anointed to empower them for this special role becomes integrated into this idea of anointing. So that in Isaiah 61, verse 1, we read that Jesus is speaking there. He's the servant, prophetically speaking. He says, the Lord has poured out his Spirit upon me because he has anointed me. He would be the king that would bring freedom and so the Holy Spirit, remember in his baptism, descends like a dove upon Jesus 
as king, as an anointed one. And then we find an example in 1 Kings of one, in chapter 19 of one of the prophets, Elisha, being anointed. And a prophet is someone who would speak for God, speak the words of God. They would say often, you read the books of the prophets, you hear, thus, King James Version, saith the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Here it is. This is not Isaiah talking. This is not Joel talking. This is God talking. I'm just an instrument bringing this message. That is the role of a prophet. Sometimes they would foretell the future, but as, as the old preachers say, their real job was to not just to foretell, but to what? Forthtell, to speak out the word of God. They spoke for God. But Jesus isn't an anointed one. Jesus, as we read over and over again, Peter says, you are the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. And all of these prophecies, all of these predictions spoke of one who would come, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, the psalmist says, a priest who would not be from the Levitical line, but who would speak before the Lord, bringing offerings, bringing uh, uh, peace between his people and God forever. And the whole book of Hebrews unpacks that idea of Jesus as our great high priest who brings his once-for-all sacrifice before the Father and makes unity between God and mankind. Jesus is the king. Jesus, essentially, the, the focal point of the Christ is he is the king. He is the Lord. God has made him, Peter says in Acts 2, both Lord and Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one with all authority. And Jesus is the prophet. There were prophets, but Jesus is the prophet. You can see people talking about this after Jesus feeds the multitude in John 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done in John 6, verse 14, they said, this is indeed the prophet. A prophet? The prophet who is to come into the world. What they're thinking about there is this prophecy that Moses made back in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19, where he said, God will raise up a prophet like me among you. And people, as the Jews through the years studied that and thought about that, most people came to realize this is a part of the messianic prophecy. They came to understand that the Messiah would be the prophet and the king, the conquering one, the saving one. And the weirdest part of this statement to me is the second part. This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Like a future tense of a present tense. Isn't he the prophet who has come into the world? If he's here, he's the prophet who has come into the world. Why, do, why don't they say he is the prophet who has come into the world? Why do they say he's the prophet who is to come? 
find a similar thing in Martha's confession. And again, this is after Jesus, right in the middle of the book of John, after Jesus has healed Lazarus, her brother. Just like the middle of Mark and the middle of Matthew and the middle of Luke hinge on Peter's confession. We find this confession here at the center of the book of John. And she says almost the same thing as Peter said. I believe that you are the Christ, Martha says. The Son of God. Who is coming into the world. Again, that future tense thing. Who is the one who's coming or the one who came? Remember when uh, the disciples of John came before Jesus and they said, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? The one who is to come. So what's going on with all of this? Why, do they, why don't they just change the tense of the verb? Here's the point. Fundamental to the idea of Messiah is future-looking hope. This is who Messiah is. This is who Christ is. The idea here is he's the one we've all been waiting for. He's the one that's going to change everything. When he comes, there is all of time before he comes... And then there's everything that happens after he comes. And this is the moment everything changes. The one who is to come, they've been looking forward to the one who is to come for all of these years. And now that's just his name. The one who is to come. The one who will save us, who will redeem Israel. In Luke 24, the, the people on the road to Emmaus, the two men on the road to Emmaus say to Jesus, ironically, though they don't recognize him, the risen Jesus, they're walking with him and they say, we thought he was the one who is to redeem Israel. The one who is. You notice this thing about the one over and over again? The one who is. To redeem Israel, the one who is to come. Jesus is not just the anointed one. He is the coming one. He is the one who is to come. That is, there is only one that we place our hope in. And everything changed when he came because his God's kingdom He's the king. God's kingdom broke into this world from heaven. It broke in in a way it never had before. Not just with his miracles and his healing and his mighty works, but in the grace he brought. In the forgiveness from sins. In the peace with God. In the new humanity he created. Now there is a new kind of way to be human. That is upside down and backwards compared to everybody else. A way where love, modeled on his work on the cross, is our rallying call. Jesus changed everything. Here's an interesting thing. He is still not only the one who came back in 0 A.D., <laughs> But he is still the one 
who is to come. The kingdom has come, and yet the kingdom is also coming. The king has come, and yet the king is also coming. That is, we are in the kingdom, but it will more fully be realized when every enemy of this conquering warrior king is defeated. And the last enemy, 1 Corinthians 15 says, to be defeated is death. Sin and death, all evil, all suffering, all sickness, all that opposes life and goodness will be gone when Jesus comes again, as a brother Mike talked about in the Lord's Supper. It'll be gone. And we will be at peace in the bliss of our Lord forever. That's who Jesus is. He's the hero who changes the story, who switches it up on all of us. And no matter how much they were looking forward to it, they couldn't conceive of how he would do it and how strange and surprising this salvation would be to die on a cross, to raise from the dead, and to create a people who are living righteously and graciously in the midst of a wicked world until that day when the kingdom is handed back to the Father, as 1 Corinthians 15 puts it. So there's this question that Jesus asks, who do they say I am? Do you ever think about this? Why did Jesus ask that first question? Why did he say, who do people say I am? He's setting a context for the second question, right? It's like, you ever watch a TV show or a movie, and from the distance, they show an establishing shot? Okay, this is going to happen in the diner, and they show the diner from the outside, and then you go inside, and you see things happening inside the diner. It's called an establishing shot. This question is like an establishing shot. It says, here's where you are. Here's all the noise that's happening everywhere in the world about Jesus. And then we zoom in on the action, which is his second question. Who do you say I am? So I want you to think about this first question, just like Jesus asked his disciples. Think about this. Who do all the people around you say that Jesus is? Who do... Your friends say that Jesus is. Who do your teachers, your coworkers say that Jesus is? Who do the celebrities and influencers say that Jesus is? Who do the scholars and historians say Jesus is? Who do your parents say Jesus is? And get a swirl of different answers. But here's the key. Once you've thought about that, Jesus doesn't care about your answer to his first question. He cares about your answer to his second question. Who do you say I am? And that first question lets you separate yourself from all of that and say, okay, yeah, I see it. But I take my stand right here. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord and Christ. Jesus is the one. That's where I build my life. Who do you say Jesus is? 
Jesus is also the chosen one. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was there before Peter and John and James. And the Father said from heaven, this is my son, my chosen one. And he said something else. Listen to him. And to listen to Jesus isn't just like, hear him out. Maybe he has some good things to say. What he's saying here is he has the authority. He's the prophet. Other prophets said, thus saith the Lord. Jesus says, thus say I. I am the Lord. And I tell you, this is what you do. This is the way to life. This is the way to everything that you may not even know it, but you want and so we trust him when we get it and when we don't. And we walk with Jesus. You listen to him. And so here's my question. This is the big idea of the whole thing. Because Jesus is either the one or he's one of. Who do you say he is? And here's the thing. Are you living like Jesus is who you say he is? It's one thing to say it. Everybody can say it. And I'm not saying sinless perfection. Do you have it all right? That's not what this is about. It's about commitment. It's about faith. Faith is trust and loyalty, saying I am faithful to my king and I put my confidence in him. I walk with him. He goes, I go. He says it, I go there. Are you living like Jesus is who you say he is? Are you living that way in your marriage? Are you living that way in your addictions? In your habits? In your free time and in your work time and in your family time? Are you living that way in your commitment and partnership with God in his church? Are you living that way in your time with him in, the, in prayer and in the word? Are you living that way? Are you listening like God the Father said from heaven? Imagine that booming voice. Listen to him. He's the one. He's the one. He's worth following. His gentle strength <laughs> confounds us, but his authority directs us.